Section seven of Ulysses S. Grant by Owen Wister. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five, part four. On the right, Hooker was unexpectedly strengthened by a part of Sherman's force, which the breaking of a bridge had prevented from following Sherman. Therefore, Grant turned Lookout Mountain into a more serious matter than he had planned. At the mountain's front, Hooker displayed himself, and while he thus occupied the enemy's attention on top, from behind them a part of his force came somewhat upon their rear through the drifting fog. Their picket was taken. From his post of observation on Orchard Knob, Grant saw the enemy coming down the mountain to oppose the advance there. But further round, the other force that had taken the picket was pressing on and up. And suddenly the Confederates saw this meeting invasion. They fired down uselessly. Though men fell in this steep scramble, the force came on through stones and thickets, and, joining with the force in front, ascended out of sight into the mist, until Grant could often only hear the noise of the invisible guns nearer and nearer the top of the mountain. By night Hooker was established there. The Wednesday morning was cold and fine. The battle's change of shape from its original design was clear to see. Over on Sherman's side many troops were now massed against him nor on account of that unexpected gap between the end of the ridge and its continuation could he achieve his assault with the necessary celerity. Bragg had taken his troops from Lookout Mountain to oppose Sherman, and Bragg, should he see fit, might really get away without further harm to himself. So Hooker was ordered across from Lookout Mountain to interrupt his possible retreat. As Sherman came fighting along Missionary Ridge from the left, Bragg removed more and more troops from the center of the balcony to oppose him, so that up there the enemy's force was visibly growing thinner in the center as it grew thicker on the left. The shape of the battle was steadily changing. Something must be done to divert the enemy's increasing blows from Sherman. Hooker, coming behind them from Lookout Mountain, could do it. But no hooker was to be seen. His speed had been checked by a destroyed bridge. He was on his way, but not at hand, for this urgent hour. As we easily follow a boat race or a game on land from our arranged benches, so Grant and his staff from Orchard Knob saw, as it has only once or twice been seen before, the whole thunderous pageant flashing upon the hills of Chattanooga. And up there, inaccessible to help, Sherman was fighting the current of a gathering tide. Bragg's attention must be distracted from him down here, somehow. And so this battle takes its final unexpected splendid shape, and passes like a great song into our history. Four of our greatest, Thomas, Sherman, Sheridan, Grant, stand together in it, the only time they ever did so, a gathering of chiefs indeed, and with them in their splendor, as is fit, inspired by them to share their own renown, 
stands the American volunteer, reckless at the right time, suddenly immortal with wild, courageous wisdom. He is told, by way of experiment, to advance to the base of the hill, that center which Bragg had been thinning, and there take Bragg's lowest line of works. Again he goes steadily, as if on parade, with flags flying and music playing. Then he swiftly charges, and next finds himself master of the rifle pits, with prisoners captured he has not time to know how. Here he has been ordered to stop. But down on his head from the top pours such a stream of fire that staying is death while going back is failure. Twenty thousand of him crouch there, twenty thousand bodies, but one white-hot spirit, transfigured and resistless. Without orders he rises, he climbs, he goes on his hands, he mounts the broken steep slant of hill, leading his captains as much as they lead him, and the astonished Grant from Orchard Knob sees him storm the crest and turn the enemy's guns upon themselves. It is done. Bragg is split in flying pieces. The stars and stripes wave upon Missionary Ridge. When Grant rode up among this seething triumph, the men quickly found him out and swarmed upon him by hundreds, embracing his feet and calling his name and among all the gifts and tokens that presently showered upon him for this great November 25, even brighter than the gold medal voted by Congress is the memory of that Briarwood cigar case given him by a poor soldier who made it with his pocket-knife. Now he sat in the center of his nation's bright day. Donelson, Vicksburg, Chattanooga melted together in his fame. Thanksgiving spread from his deed in widening circles, his message to the government, the pith of modesty. I believe I am not premature in announcing a complete victory over Bragg. Is enough and better than if it had been more. And Lincoln answered, God bless you all. And what did Sherman with his men do now? Having, without a moment's rest, after a march of over four hundred miles, without sleep for three successive nights, crossed the Tennessee, and fought their share of Chattanooga, and pursued the enemy out of Tennessee, they turned more than a hundred and twenty miles north, and compelled Longstreet to raise the siege of Knoxville, where Burnside was when in a few months Grant was appointed full lieutenant-general under special act of Congress, he was the first since Washington, Winfield Scott being only brevet. He wrote to Sherman, What I want is to express my thanks to you and McPherson as the men to whom above all others I feel indebted for whatever I have had of success how far your execution of whatever has been given you to do entitles you to the reward i am receiving you cannot know as well as i do and sherman answered in a spirit equally noble you do yourself injustice and us too much honor 
In these letters the two men lay bare their best selves. And how well Sherman knew his friend. Now, as to the future, he says, do not stay in Washington. Halleck is better qualified than you to stand the buffets of intrigue and policy. For God's sake and your country's sake, come out of Washington. That is why Grant did come out when he was general-in-chief. Better, far better, had he never gone back as president. Assuredly, Sherman knew him very well. Ceremonies and crowds attended him after his arrival in Washington to receive his new rank. His actual arrival with his little boy was according to his own inveterate modesty. Unheralded from the train in the early morning, he waited his turn behind the more pushing travellers, and reached the hotel book last. Chittenden had told us how the transfixed hotel clerk changed his manner on reading U.S. Grant and Son, Galena, Illinois. Horace Porter records Lincoln's cry of welcome that evening. John Sherman writes to his brother of the adulations in Washington and his fear that Grant will be spoiled. And Grant's remark to Lincoln, Really, Mr. President, I have had enough of the show business, completes the picture. No, not quite. One week later, when he was in Nashville, arranging with Sherman the vast concluding process of the rebellion, the show business, in the shape of the mayor with a rosewood box and a sword, caught him again. Sherman's incomparably brisk pen has drawn the scene. The mayor rose and in a most dignified way read a finished speech to General Grant, who stood, as usual, very awkwardly and the mayor closed his speech by handing him the resolutions of the city council engrossed on parchment with a broad ribbon and large seal attached. After the mayor had fulfilled his office so well, General Grant said, Mr. Mayor, as I knew that this ceremony was to occur, and as I am not used to speaking, I have written something in reply. He then began to fumble in his pockets first his breastcoat pocket, then his pants, vest, and so on, and after a considerable delay he pulled out a crumpled piece of common yellow cartridge paper which he handed to the mayor. When read, his answer was most excellent, short, concise, and, if delivered, would have been all that the occasion required. I could not help laughing at a scene so characteristic of the man to whom all had turned as the only one to guide the nation in a war that had become painfully critical. So now he faced the conclusion. From Cairo in 1861 to Chattanooga in 1863 he had marched forward, narrowing the Confederacy blow after blow. Here, between Washington and Richmond, only a hundred miles, blow after blow had narrowed nothing. In April 1864 they stood as they had started in April 1861. Richmond was still to be taken, Lee still to be crushed. Three years, six generals, and a loss of one hundred and forty-four thousand men had failed to do this. From such failure Grant received two great inheritances, and with them succeeded. 
his inheritances were to have his own way unhampered and the control of a perfect instrument the army of the potomac under general meade grant's detractors lay too much stress on the first inheritance he had his own way not only because lincoln had at length learned how disastrous meddling was but also because lincoln felt in his marrow that here was a man who would go on and do the thing he had met no such man till now he had been looking for one ceaselessly upon the army of the potomac and general meade too much stress cannot be laid without that engine and pilot the captain would have wrecked his vessel several times during forty-eight hours around spotsylvania he essayed direction of the tactics himself and wrought such havoc that thereafter he allowed the pilot meade full charge of this we may feel sure that grant underrated lee at the beginning he had encountered no such genius in the west his remark that the army of the potomac had never been fought up its full capacity indicates that he expected quicker results than he got and the famous sentence from his letter near spotsylvania on may eleven i propose to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer plainly shows brief anticipations it took until the following april and in his own report one reads between the lines something like an apology for these terrible battles he says whether they might have been better in conception and execution is for the people who mourn the loss of friends fallen and who have to pay the pecuniary cost to say all i can say is that what i have done has been done conscientiously to the best of my ability and in what I conceived to be for the best interests of the whole country. His conception was to hammer continuously until by mere attrition there should be nothing left of the enemy. He reduced the problem not to who can win the greatest victories, but to who can stand the heaviest losses. To state it thus was to solve it it was not military but it was deeply sagacious it was like columbus and the egg it was also a confession of lee's superiority the fact that lee had the interior lines is not sufficient counterbalance these awful battles add not to grant's but to lee's reputation on his side lee evidently underrated grant he too had been used to other generals generals who struck a blow and then sat down but it was never to be like that any more there were two ways for grant to move from the potomac on land to richmond by the right flank westward and inland an easier country to fight in a harder line of communications to cover by the left flank southeastward nearer the water a harder country easier communication to move immediately south of richmond by water and from there cut its supporting railroads was well enough provided lee would keep himself inside richmond's fortifications while this was going on but it was unlikely he would do now what he had never done before on the contrary 
he could be expected so to enlarge his circumference of protection that to envelop him would spread the army out too thin and bare its extended flanks to disadvantageous attack while fighting for possession of the radiating railroads moreover since lee had to be bitterly encountered somewhere it was better to meet him further from his home and nearer our own supplies this too for a while screened washington grant moved by the left flank may third choosing a midnight start but lee saw him before he could get beyond the unpropitious country and compelled a battle may five on that beginning day the two crossed weapons both of perfect steel lee handled his like a great swordsman grant handled his like a great blacksmith lee had some seventy thousand men grant some one hundred and twenty thousand day and often night the weapons struck fire at some point day and night during not weeks but months some of these clashes have names forever reddened with slaughter the wilderness spotsylvania north anna cold harbor but in between them flow nameless streams of blood continuously more sublimely shines the american volunteer at cold harbor than at chattanooga more sublime in walking calmly to visible death than in tumultuously rushing to victory he stood in the center with the enemy in a great half-wheel around him and knowing that someone had blundered walked into this first he wrote his name and home and fastened the address to his clothes thus they would know whose body it was then at the word he went six thousand union soldiers were killed at cold harbor in one hour in the book of noble deeds from thermopylae down is there a more heroic page than this by november one grant had lost eighty thousand men more than lee began with the army of the potomac the weapon of fine temper was hacked into a saw by the usage it had received nor was lee crushed yet nor richmond yet taken in grant's pictures the story is plain the saddened eyes the worn face the mouth shut down tight all around the heavy strain heavier these months than lincoln's with distant campaigns to plan near battles to fight disloyal politics in the north and the usual popular imbecile clamor for a change or a cessation bore grant down inwardly he carried the union on his back and other generals had failed him and he had been a disappointment to himself he gave in to drink it seems at times discovering this ben butler appears to have blackmailed him he had requested butler's removal for bad conduct at petersburg butler visited him he backed down not from personal fear the union cause was trembling in politics a public tale of drink might remove the general and split the union forever presently sherman's and sheridan's successes clinched lincoln's election next butler showed incompetence again then grant dismissed him butler could have published as much about drink as he pleased the union was safe 
Wound up in this, contemporaneously rather than logically, is General W. F. Smith's severe fate. Under first impressions of him received at Chattanooga, Grant had thought him worthy a high command, and at this time designed him for Butler's successor. But in the same twenty-four hours with Butler's blackmail, General Smith criticized to Grant's face the Battle of Cold Harbor. Thinking this over, it struck Grant that General Smith had meant to whip him over Meade's shoulder, as he phrased it. He relieved his campaign of so captious a subordinate. It was perhaps advisable, but seems harsh. Yet if the North was dismayed by Grant's destructive battles, still more so was the South. They felt the end coming. Each bloody crisis saw Grant move on. Such a thing had not been seen before. Early's almost successful attempt to take Washington did not frighten Grant from his siege of Petersburg. He merely let Sheridan loose upon Early and broke him. That also settled the Shenandoah Valley, secession's fertile incubator and truck garden. Sent there during three years to handle it with gloves, our soldiers had seen it so periodically that they called it Harper's Weekly. At length, Sheridan, though inexcusably brutal in his barn-burning, yet in destroying crops and forage merely treated the valley as it should have been treated at first. But secession considered that Union should fight with gloves. When Union began to fight to a finish, secession cried out. Sheridan is still denounced, but secession's massacre of Fort Pillow and burning of Chambersburg are not mentioned. So the South knew that in Grant's deadly grip and will was something fateful never met till now. And that grip was seizing it elsewhere. Besides Sheridan, Sherman was closing in upon it in Georgia, and Thomas soon struck it heavily at Nashville. These simultaneous strides of disaster had all been set and kept in motion by the single central will and no matter what the impatient country said, the President stood Grant's friend through thick and thin. The Secretary of War had made one supreme effort to maintain his dictatorship over the movements of the army. The report of his fall is thus. Hearing from Grant that certain troops were to be disposed in a certain way, he objected that he had other plans and could not allow it, Grant said, But the order has been given. The domineering Stanton then objected much more, and always, when he paused, Grant imperturbably replied, But the order has been given. The secretary rushed to Lincoln. Lincoln said, But Congress has made him general of all the armies. The secretary still poured himself out, and still the deprecating Lincoln murmured only, but Congress has made him general of all the armies. There it stopped permanently. And Lincoln's words to Grant through this time, though once he expresses a hope that as few lives as possible may be sacrificed, show his deep faith and his deep satisfaction in his aggressive, indomitable general. In August he writes, the particulars of your campaign I neither know nor seek to know. 
I wish not to intrude any restraints or constraints upon you." Grant's reply unites a modesty and a self-reliance that Lincoln had not heard until this general came. Should my success be less than I desire or expect, the least I can say is the fault is not yours. No wonder Lincoln liked his new commander. He writes again, when less firm spirits at Washington had been counseling a halt, I have seen your dispatch expressing your unwillingness to break your hold where you are. Neither am I willing. Hold on with a bulldog grip and chew and choke as much as possible. End of chapter 5, part 4